drive from our offices. So it's strategic for us to be in Chattanooga in numerous ways in terms of equipping the church. But God's done uh, amazing things over the last six years that we've been there. I came down uh, something as a, a lone ranger and a ministry planter, but God has grown and blessed our ministry. I now have four associates with me. And we have six support groups going at any one time. We have support groups going for men struggling with sexual brokenness issues. We have groups going for women struggling with those same issues. We have a group for wives of struggling men. And we have an occasional parents group that meets for someone who has a son or daughter in the lifestyle. Because too often we find that when a son or daughter comes out of the closet, so to speak, the parents go into the closet. And so they need a safe place to deal with the issues that they are confronted with as well. So God has grown our staff, and I'm uh, tremendously uh, blessed by them. Um, There's a photo card and some literature, by the way, before I forget, out in a table in the hall. Feel free to help yourself to uh, some of those things later on. But God has grown us both in the direct ministry side and in the equipping side. Um, We've had we have not only six groups going at any one time in Chattanooga, but we've had Uh, 2,500, close to 3,000 people attend our equipping seminars over the past three years, and we're excited about that. And we've seen God grow interest in that regard, and we've seen churches uh, come to us saying, you know, we really want you to come and teach us more, uh, how to more effectively minister into these areas. And so that's the kind of thing we're very excited to do, and we're ramping up our resources for in a big way. That uh, equipping side of our Ministry, we really see that as the growth curve for the next 10 years, by the way. And you can really pray for us in that because we, um, you know, for almost 20 years of our ministry's existence, we really pretty much put 80% of our energies into the direct ministry side, into individual mentoring and small group discipling, and maybe 20% into equipping and educating. Now we want to see a big change happen over the next 10 years. And eventually we'll expect to see 70% of our energies involved in equipping the church and 30% in direct ministry. So that's a huge culture shift for us as an organization and any ministry organization that tries to do that is up for challenges. We've been trying to learn from some others, from some other like-minded organizations in that regard. But uh, it's, it's, a big, it's a big hurdle, but one we're very excited about. And specifically, those of you who... Uh, See our newsletter. And by the way, before I forget, I have copies of that out on the table as well. Um, You can sign up for this. We'd be glad to send this to you on a regular basis. But I know your church uh, has those here. And we actually have a church ambassador, uh, Greg Irwin. I don't see Greg here. There he is. Thank you, Greg. Wave that hand. (laughs) Thank you, Greg. Greg is what we call a church ambassador. And uh, with that wave of a hand, he identifies himself as connection, connection between your church and Harvest USA. And we're really grateful for men and women like Greg and their willingness to uh, help us in those sorts of ways. Keep re- keeping resources like this and like our mission before local churches such as yours. But um, we have an experiment of sorts going on right now in western Pennsylvania. For those of you who don't know your geography too well, Philadelphia is in the southeast corner of Pennsylvania. On the other end of the state, 300 miles away, is Pittsburgh, and we have, just in the past year, planted uh, a new region of our mission, of our ministry in Pittsburgh, and a guy named Tim Geiger is heading that up, and he went there, interestingly enough, to, to pioneer our new mission statement in its purest form. He decided, and we decided in, in sending him there, he was going to start no groups on his own. He was going to put all of his energies into equipping the church. 
And so he started what we call monthly ministry seminars. There's four of them going now around the Pittsburgh metro area. And out of those monthly ministry seminars, he's developing a helper network, people who are better equipped uh, to minister into these issues from a biblical standpoint. Uh, And out of that helper network, he hopes to grow a ministry leader network, people who want a little more training, a little, and perhaps want to be involved in formal ministry, more formal ministry, and not just informal ministry. But we, we want to equip um, hundreds of people to be what we, a part of that helper network over the next three to five years here in Chattanooga in the Mid-South, as well as what's going on in Pittsburgh. So we're very excited about that. And that's a big uh, challenge, for us, one challenge for us here in the Mid-South, but one we're very um, thrilled to be a part of. You can pray as we start to bring those monthly ministry seminars to Chattanooga here in 2008. And you can specifically pray that a non-PCA church would be the host site for us. I happen to be a teaching elder in the PCA. We have uh, two dozen churches that support us here in the Mid-South, a little over that. And 95% of those are PCA churches, which is good and bad. It's uh, great in terms of our exposure in the PCA, but there's a lot of the rest of evangelicalism out there that has big needs and big opportunities. Well, we specifically started to converse with the Southern Baptist congregation uh, down the road from us, and we're hoping that they will agree to be the host site for our monthly ministry seminars and build uh, with us out of that. So you can, you can pray for that. We're excited about those kinds of opportunities, too. We have a... Um, a church ambassador. We've had a church ambassador in this particular congregation for a while, and more and more people are getting to know about us there, so we're excited about that. But we want to see God's people equipped for informal ministry, because whether or not you ever lead a support group, for instance, you have friends, you have neighbors, you have coworkers, you have family members who are dealing with sexual brokenness issues. And when someone comes to you and is honest enough to make some of those kinds of disclosures to you, those are great gospel opportunities. We want you to seize those opportunities and be bold in Christ to step into those situations, and we would like to uh, help you uh, to make that happen. You know, sometimes we're asked uh, about opposition to our ministry. What kinds of opposition that we, uh, do we get? And... You know, we get our share of uh, hate mail and, and sometimes disturbing phone calls. And typically the, the threatening phone call comes late at night when the caller is pretty sure nobody's going to be in the office, you know, like 1 a.m. <laughs> what office do you know is answering the phone at 1 a.m.? Well, maybe if you have a 24-hour crisis line, yes. But, you know, those are the kinds of typical uh, phone calls that we get. But by far our biggest challenge when we uh, respond to that kind of question is, is the opposition that we face in the church, uh, specifically from Christians, longtime Christians, even Christian leaders. And it's a challenge for us in lots of different ways. I was to a, a large meeting of my own denomination uh, recently, and I went in and was going to be presenting. We had our display up, and the, one of the first men that I talked to, uh, I went up and introduced myself to, and he immediately went like this with his arms. And he not only that, but he had a stack of papers with him. And he went like this. And he kept that posture for the whole time we were talking. Now, I'm not an expert in body language and communication issues. But I know a closed stance when I see one <laughs> and when I feel one. 
And we talked a little bit, and he mentioned something about our ministry being a, a difficult ministry. And then he made a comment that uh, kind of told me an awful lot. He said, you know, the Bible says we're to flee sexual sin, not resist it. Now, what's the underlying message there? Well, he wasn't really open to more conversation about it. He kind of made a statement, and he didn't want to engage all that much more about it. If you're involved in sexual sin, it's your own fault. End of story. One lady came up to uh, our display table once in another setting, and she told our staff that she thought our ministry must be a very sad ministry to be involved in. And she said, does anyone really change? Have you ever seen anyone become a Christian? We had another woman in a totally different setting speak to uh, our ministry director, and she told, she told him point blank that she thought our ministry was disgusting. Why, why do we get these kinds of reactions from Christian leaders? from committed believers, long-time believers, leaders in the church? Well, I think there's lots of reasons for it. But all the more, it fuels us to, say, to want to say that the church really needs to be involved in this kind of ministry because the church has things to learn about the gospel from being involved in ministry to sexually broken people. Let me tell you a little bit about what I mean. Why do ministry to sexually broken people in a local church? There, there are so many reasons. Just a few of them I'll, I'll mention for you, and then I want to look at it with you at a passage of Scripture tonight that's been very instructive to me. Well, one of the reasons is because the problem of sexual sin and sexual brokenness exists in the local church. It's not just in the culture out there. It's not just those filthy pagans, those idol worshipers, those Ninevites, to use Jonah's framework, but it's a problem in the church among God's people, and we have to have our eyes open to see that. You have to have your eyes opened. Furthermore, sexual sin has always been a problem in the local church, not just in the unbelieving culture out there, and the Lord has always given the local church the grace to handle it, the power, the strength, the resources to handle it. Paul repeatedly in his letters, assumes that sexual sin is going on in the local church. There's only two of his letters that don't speak of that very specifically. And so he's repeatedly mentioning it as being present in the local church. He assumes it. Do we? Do we assume that it's a problem in the church? And do we therefore risk speaking about it? Furthermore, the local church is established by God as the, as the place where sanctification, where growth and holiness is meant to take place, where real intimacy is meant to take place to replace the pull of false intimacy that pornography represents. False intimacy, it's a counterfeit closeness. Well, God's given us the real thing. In the local church, he's given us the resources for that. He's given us the avenues for that. If, we're, if our eyes are open to see, to see that. Furthermore, one member's sin in the body of Christ impoverishes the whole body. We are robbed and ripped off whenever someone falls into sexual sin and is not dealt with in a biblical way. The church is robbed. The church is ripped off. 
The church, God's people, are ripped off. They're, they're not given a chance to see the power of the gospel alive and at work in somebody's life and heart. The transforming power of Christ is huge. God gives the local church gifts to specifically address these issues and always has. And it's for the joy of the church. It's for the joy of God's people. Sometimes we think that sexual sin is all about the no's and the things we need to avoid. And you know that's true. There's a, there's a dark side to sexuality that God speaks very clearly and specifically about. But those are joy issues. When God says, don't eat the fruit of the tree, when God puts boundaries in place, it's for our joy as his people. It's for our greatest delight. And when we get that, when our eyes are open to see that, we start to become harvesters. I want to reflect with you for a little bit tonight on what does it take to be a harvester? You know, Jesus had real issues with his disciples. And often they didn't get it. They just didn't get it. But other people did. Some other people did. I want to read with you from John chapter 4. By the way, this is not my um, telephone. This is, uh, but I do have the Bible in my uh, little palm device here. So uh, it can go with me wherever I go very, very easily. I want to pick up in John chapter 4 and beginning at verse 27. And you know the context very well. It's where it's right after Jesus has this amazing conversation with a woman uh, that's sometimes referred to as the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman. We could say today that she was that she's a sex addict of sorts and she's an expert at avoiding people. She's at the well in the heat of the day at noontime because she knows nobody in their right mind goes to the well at that hour. She knows who she's perceived to be in the community's eyes, and she's an expert at avoiding people. She's an expert at keeping distance. Don't get too close. Jesus has an amazing encounter, encounter with her. And then listen from, as I read from verse 27 and following. I'm reading from the New International Version. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. They were surprised. Your version may say they marveled. They were shocked, appalled. They were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe to harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. May be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. 
many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This is God's word. Well, think of the context here, and it's pretty amazing. Jesus says to his disciples, open your eyes. You're not harvesters. Jesus is a harvester. The woman is a harvester. The disciples aren't. And so if you're going to be a harvester, you have to have your eyes opened to see some things. What do you have to see? Well, you can invite me back for my whole sermon on this topic another time, Alan. I'm not going to give it all to you tonight. Just, just one principle I want to draw out of this tonight. And it's really what you might call the first principle of the gospel. The first principle. And maybe it's obvious, but let's consider it. You see, there's, there's bad news and there's good news in the gospel. That's one of the funny things about the gospel. There's always a bad news element of it, as well as a good news element. Jesus says, open your eyes. And the woman says here, he told me everything I ever did. No gospel unless Jesus tells you everything you've ever done. And of course, we know from the story what those things were. He told me about my sin. She had five husbands. The woman, the guy she was living with now wasn't even her husband. Jesus speaks to her about that. He tells me about my sin. He put his finger on my shame. That's what happened with this woman. No gospel unless you let Jesus tell you about your sin. Unless you let him speak to you. But then she goes on to say, he told me everything I ever did. I think he's the Christ. And at the very end of the passage, same thing. He told me everything I ever did. And then it says, now we know that this man really is the savior of the world. You see, there's the good and the bad. He tells you everything about you, and then he tells you about himself. He says, I'm the savior of the world. It's okay. The gospel is, on the one hand, that you are much more wicked than you ever dared believe. And Jesus tells you. You see, you've always suspected it, but you have to, get, you have, to have faith in your sin. You have to believe that you really are just as wicked as you've always suspected, and worse. And Jesus tells you. You see, you've always known that you were that selfish. You've always suspected that you were that dysfunctional. You've always known that you were that messed up. But you have to admit it to yourself. Jesus gets you out of denial. He gives you the ultimate intervention. He says, believe you are just as sinful as you always suspected, and worse. First step. He gets you to believe in your sin. He tells you everything you've ever done, things you didn't remember, things you'd rather avoid, things you'd rather not admit. But then on the other hand, he says, I'm the savior of the world. So you're much more wicked than you ever dared believe, and you're much greater loved in Christ than you ever dared hope. And that's the gospel. And that's always the gospel. Jesus tells you everything about you, and then he tells you everything about him. 
And there it is. And it's all here in this text, but there's a hundred ways that it comes across in the scriptures. But that's the heart of the gospel. And what happens to someone when they understand that, when their eyes are opened? We see what happens with this woman, don't we? She had an inferiority complex, you might say, in the avoiding people in the middle of the day at the well when she knew nobody in their right mind would be there. Inferiority complexes and superiority complexes are both dealt with her in her life. She goes off and tells people, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. I think he's the Christ. I think he's the Messiah. And so they come and they see. She becomes a harvester. The fear and anxiety is gone. Oh, she's seen everything she's ever did. But she's seen the Savior. She's seen the Messiah. His glory has covered her shame. He's put his finger on her shame in tenderness. And he said, it's okay. I'm the Savior of the world. My glory covers your shame. And when the church gets it, when the church of Jesus gets it, when his disciples like you and I get it, we start to become welcoming people. We become safe people. We become a safe place for people to deal with all sorts of shame-inducing issues. We become a safe place and a safe people group so that we're signposts effectively to the glory of Jesus, to the saving power of Jesus, to the redeeming resurrection power of the Savior of the world. We have men and women in our ministry who have met Jesus and been enfolded into his church. They've met a Savior who told them the worst about them and loved them anyway. And they're harvesters now. It's a wonderful thing. One man named Alan comes to mind. He was um, an expert. He would tell you he was an expert at avoiding people. He uh, was in the lifestyle for 15 years after throwing the towel in on what he understood of Christianity early on in his life. And he had trouble looking at anyone straight in the eye for more than half a second. (laughs) He, he He described himself as socially dysfunctional, but he was also addicted to sex. Internet cruising became the last thing he did at night and the first thing in the morning. In the morning. And... He was in a deep pit. But in the midst of that brokenness, God took him down, showed him the worst about himself. He took a medical crisis, and in this case, in Alan's life, to open his eyes, to see the reality of his lostness, the reality of his sin. He came to believe in his sin. And then Jesus said, I'm your, I'm your redeemer. My glory is here to cover your shame. Alan is a transformed man. If he was here today, you'd you'd be amazed at his joy, at his peace. He's given his testimony with our ministry in numerous different settings. And not only that, he drove 90 miles to meet me the first night, uh, the first day that I met him. And then he came every night, uh, once a week for two years to be involved with our ministry. He still drives 90 miles each way to be involved with ministry because he's gone through our small group leader training. He's one of our most effective group facilitators now. He's still telling telling other men, come, meet a redeemer that told me everything I ever did. He's the Christ. He's a harvester. He's a delight to know. He uh, has had his eyes opened. 
And you remember that woman who I told you told us our ministry was disgusting? Her name is Donna. She was one of our first volunteers in our ministry when I moved down here six years ago. She's now one of our most effective staff members. She's had her eyes opened. She loves this ministry. She sees the glory of Christ shining in broken people's lives week in and week out. It brings a delight to her heart. She's been married almost 30 years. She's got grandkids. But she loves our ministry. She's a harvester. She's had her eyes opened. She would be the first to tell you. And so we get excited when people come to see the worst about themselves and then come to see the Savior in the midst of that. And we hope this church will become even more excited than you already are about being involved in this harvest. The fields are white, says Jesus. But you've got to open your eyes to see some things. You've got to open your eyes. And not only that, you've got to taste. It's phenomenal in this passage, too, how Jesus mixes these things together. He's talking about food. You know, the disciples are running off to Publix down the road, and they bring him back goodies for lunch, and he's, and he's not hungry. And they say, did somebody beat us to it? You know, and, and um, he says, I have a food to eat you know not of. And your stomachs weren't made for the baby food you're eating. His food is, is to be a harvester. His energy source, the thing that, that drives him, the thing that energizes him, is doing his father's will, is being a part of the harvest. And he says to his, his followers, open your eyes and then sit down and eat. Sit down and eat this meat. This woman tasted of it. She was never the same. The gospel is changing people out of homosexuality and all sorts of sexual sin and has been for 2,000 years. And when we open our eyes and we realize that, it's a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing. It's for the joy of God's people. It's for your joy and mine. Well, I want to stop at that point and see if you've got uh, questions. Often folks have uh, things they'd like to talk about and... I want to open up and see if you have some questions that you'd like to talk about tonight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we want to say, you know, our theology is, is big enough to say that we shouldn't be afraid of talking about genetic contributions to a struggle with homosexuality. That is not the same thing as saying, as buying into genetic determinism and saying, my genes made me do it, or I'm just born that way. We talk about a a model for understanding where sexual sin comes from. We call it our tree model. And we say there's rotten fruit on the tree of all different sorts, and sexual sin of many varieties can be different sorts of rotten fruit. But there's trunk of the tree issues, there are soil issues and root issues, and then there are seed issues. And... Genetic contributions can be part of that fallen seed because the seed issues are really the issues of our fallen hearts. And issues of our fallen hearts such as idolatry and uh, pride and fear and unbelief and envy and anger, and I could go on and mention a few others. Those seed issues are the heart issues that give rise to all kinds of rotten things in the right circumstances. And biological contributions can be part of that mix too. They're, they sort of function like the casing around the seed. If you think of the seed as our hearts, you know, we're all born in this particular space and time. We're born with particular body style. Uh, we're born with uh, 
particular giftings, personality traits, if you will, interests, that our culture determines often as being more masculine or more feminine. Uh, Often it does that kind of interpreting for us, and then we make our own choices and our own interpretations out of that. We talk about the trunk of the tree issues as worldview issues or interpretation issues. And so I think uh, we shouldn't, on the one hand, we shouldn't uh, give away the ground that, you know, you're just born that way. We have to be able to understand that there's a lot, there's a lot more to it than that. Nor should I think we, but also I think we should also not go the opposite extreme and say it's just a choice. It's not just that. It's not that simple. Anytime you go to one of those extremes, though, it's very easy because it lets lots of people off the hook and makes life very simple and not messy. <laughs> and even Christians can can find those poles attractive. Uh, but actually, reality is a lot more complex and a lot muddier than that, and a lot messier than that. So, I, it, depending on how you, what kind of relationship you have with the person involved, might shape how you would respond to a given person in that situation. But you should know in your hearts and in your minds that that's the kind of perspective that, that God gives on the situation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, we have uh, some resources on our website and a reading list that we put uh, out there pretty regularly that's got all kinds of good resources on it. Um, if you're talking about people resources or... Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have uh, some links to some of those websites on our website, which is on the back of almost all our literature, including this brochure. Um, there's, there's a number of resources out there. We are part of a large umbrella network of maybe 100 or uh, 120 other ministries are sprinkled around the country that seek to do something from a biblical perspective when it comes to homosexuality. It's called Exodus, Exodus International. They have a website with lots of resources on it, too. And it's actually, their website is exodus.to. And um, that's, a, that's a good resource. Um, there are... Um, but I'd be glad to put into your hands our top reading list. It's a one-page front and back job uh, that I'd be, uh, be glad to get to you if you email me for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. And when I say when I talk about um, sexual sin as an idolatry issue, I. I want to do that uh, carefully so that it, that doesn't become just another club to say, just repent and get over it. Oh, it's just idolatry. It is idolatry, and that's a very significant issue at the heart level and at the fruit level, too. But there's oft, it's often um, more to the journey than just saying, repent to somebody, you know, you're an idolater. That can wash right off someone's back pretty easily, too. And can also leave people in the church, unfortunately, puffed up and just a little bit more self-righteousness than they had before because, you know, they're not worshiping those kinds of nasty idols. You know, they're, they're worshiping the living and, and true God. But when I, we talk about idolatry, you know, sexual sin is idolatry or pornography is idolatry. We're talking about, yes, we are talking about the worship of images and porn is the worship of images. It's the bowing down of the heart to an image that promises something to us. Idols always make promises and they make threats. They make promises of reward. They make threats if you ignore them. They, uh, and both of those things function. So the images of porn 
uh, beckon us, they, they woo us with all kinds of promises of relief, uh, physiologically uh, or emotionally, or just a covering over of pain. Uh, porn and acting out sexually functions as the drug of choice for many people. The uh, physiological uh, things that go on in the process of sexual activity, God designed to unite us to another person in the context of marriage in a very powerful, significant way. And when we worship an idol, we are uniting ourselves to that idol. When we bow down and worship that idol, we are worshiping it and we become united to it too. And the scriptures speak of that, you know, those that worship idols become like them. Well, we see that. We see that process go on all too often too. And so the person that becomes enmeshed in pornography is giving themselves over to an idol that promises peace, security, acceptance maybe. Uh, I'll do whatever you want at the click of a mouse, you know. And so there's, and I really, or is it, if it's over the phone, for instance, it's, you know, promises of, you know, I really care about you, I really love you, you fill in the blank. Um, that I, that, that, those promises are very powerful and very significant, and the threats are, you know, if you don't, if you don't worship me as your idol, you know, you're going to get chipped. Uh, God, the true God, is going to cheat you. And so there's threats there as well. And um, those things uh, work. The, the, of course, the God of the scriptures makes incredible promises and very significant threats as well. We call them curses and blessings sometimes when we look through the Old Testament. And those are things that are very significant and very real. So there's a, there's a worship of, uh, of images that goes on when someone's involved in sexual sin of any sort. But specifically, we can see it pretty clearly, or uh, we can understand it specifically when it comes to pornography. Because there's, there's the image or an actual person that's making promises. But that person, that image can never fulfill those promises. It never gives you what it promises. It ends up cheat, cheating and enslaving and destroying you. And idolatry of any sort always does that. It makes promises it doesn't deliver. But instead it cheats and enslaves and destroys you from the inside out. And so that's, that's the, the tragedy and the, some of the dynamic of what's going on there. Well, that's an interesting question, and that begs another one, of course, because, um, you know, ultimately sexual sin isn't about sex. It's about a lot of other things. It's about meeting unmet emotional needs in sexual ways, in ways God didn't design, trying to put round pegs in square holes sometimes. And, yes, we do interface with uh, some folks that have um, crossed lines with uh, those uh, who are underage, and therefore they have to face the strong arm of the law and the consequences of that. Uh, and, yes, uh, that, can, that can involve various sorts of criminal behaviors, uh, or behaviors that are currently still criminal <laughs> in our culture. And some are arguing for... Um, course, uh, changes that would be all the more destructive. I would say they're more of one piece than we might realize. And likewise, uh, sometimes uh, folks uh, say, you know, I just can't imagine the attraction to that particular type of sexual sin. It just seems so outrageous. It just seems so over the line, over the edge. And 
sometimes I have to tell those, those folks, I, I say to those folks, the de- to the degree uh, of fantasy that the person is involved with, is involved with. That's a good barometer of the level of pain they're trying to cover up. And if someone has become a predator sexually of, of children, there is an enormous reservoir of unmet desires, of disappointment, of pain, of anger, of deprivation, of sin of various sorts, and sin against that person as well as they're acting out on that towards other people that takes someone in that direction or that's behind what has helped take to someone in that direction, if that makes any sense to you. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, since the Internet age is is, uh, upon us here for the last uh, 15 years or so, we've seen borne out the fact that, that pornography is the drug of choice for Christians. It's become that because it's so easy to hide. Uh, Nobody needs to know anything about it. You don't have to leave a trail. You don't have to go to a seedy part of town anymore. It's all there just to click away on the mouse of the mouse. And so uh, pastors and church leaders are becoming uh, enmeshed in these these patterns um, as never before. And often what we're trying to do is address those things earlier on and give pastors even and church leaders uh, safe places to talk about these issues and start to deal with their their own heart issues and their own issues in their life before it becomes a destructive uh, inferno in one way or another. But, uh, you know, even the, a lot of the evangelical men's groups, um, you know, will report that 80% of the guys in that group say uh, pornography is their number one issue. It's their number one temptation issue. It's the number one sin issue that they struggle with. And that's uh, pretty much the case for Christian leaders too because Christian leaders are just made of dust like you and I as well. And that, those are huge challenges for the church. I think one of the, one of the challenges facing uh, the church is particularly... If we're going to, if we're going to reach the twenty-somethings, uh, those that are the least populated segments of our churches, and that's one of the challenging statistics I ran across uh, recently, um, a large student ministry movement is uh, reminding us that 80% of children who are involved in church and make a profession of faith in an evangelical church, by the time they are 20, uh, by the time they are 26 they will have left the church. So somewhere between 16 and 26, we're losing vast numbers of young men and young women. And often, I'm afraid, those are the very, those are the very folks that have grown up in a sex-saturated culture who unfortunately have, have uh, gotten the message that, that Christ either can't or won't meet them in the midst of, of their struggle in the midst of their sin. And too often they don't hear from the ch- that the church is addressing these issues in a simple biblical way. And so they're out the door. Now that's not just the only reason that they're out the door, but it's certainly a wake-up call for us, I think, if we understand uh, what's, what's going on. So our, the sex-saturated level of our culture is certainly affecting uh, those who are under 30, very specifically, and, and, and certainly includes those who are 
even those who have seen Christ at work in their lives and are preparing for ministry uh, or are involved in ministry. So we want to be uh, there on seminary campuses in uh, greater ways in the future, and we've got some aggressive plans to do that. I could give you a lot of the other statistics. Yes, women, it's, it's huge. Um, you know, women have historically, porn has been seen as a man's problem, and pornography uh, for women has been kind of sidelined. Or it's taken the form of romance novels, soap operas, uh, and those sorts, those sources, those avenues of false intimacy, which are very significant. And incidentally, uh, romance novels, even Christian romance novels, are the number one genre of paperbacks sold in the country. So it's it's a huge profit business and uh, continues to be uh, continues to be so. But women become enmeshed in those kinds of patterns, and they become enmeshed. Uh, in emotionally dependent relationships that often then at some point cross a line into more overt acting out. So the path sometimes looks a little different for women, but increasingly and unfortunately because of our image-saturated society, women are becoming addicted to porn in the visual sense that men used to be at younger ages and in increasing numbers. So we can't assume that even... uh, so-called traditional pornography or visual pornography is just a guy problem anymore. It isn't. It isn't. And young women are becoming enmeshed in these patterns. You know, it's what, what's the anchor store of the mall around here? It's, a, it's the mall of Georgia or any of the other ones, you know? It's Abercrombie and Fitch. It's Victoria's Secret. <laughs> you might think that Macy's is the anchor store, but I would argue, no. <laughs> Uh, they're the ones that are setting the pace in terms of the advertising, in terms of, what, of uh, what's being sold to our young people are those edgy uh, retailers, shall we say, which are becoming more mainstream. Victoria's Secret is mainstream anymore. And what's, that, what's the message given to women and to men, you know, when you walk by a Victoria's Secret uh, store at the mall or you see those ads that, that come up on TV or whatever, let alone the internet. So women are becoming enmeshed, unfortunately, in those patterns in increasing ways. Other questions? It's about five of We could take one or two more, maybe. Well, I think you're, um, I think you're uh, getting onto something significant there, Greg, because um, we want to see that, you know, the, the gospels for Christians as well as for non-Christians, you know, and the same power that raised me from the dead is at work in other people too. And in fact, it didn't take, you know, it doesn't take one volt more energy for that person in that very um, despicable, destructive lifestyle to come to Christ than it did for me to come to Christ, you know. It didn't take one inch more miracle, one ounce more miracle, one volt more miracle. And so, as, as my friend Tim Keller likes to put it, you know, the, the, the healthy church will have sexually broken people in it. It will, and it does, he says, and rightly so. Be- why is that? Because they're gonna, the, the, a healthy church is going to be inviting people to be overwhelmed with a God 
who knows the worst about them and loves them anyway. And they're going to be doing that on a regular basis, a weekly basis, in small group settings and in large group settings, offering people tastes of real life and real intimacy and real connection and real relationships, the kinds of things they've always longed for and maybe have given up hope of trying to find, or maybe they've just sated themselves and they've numbed themselves out with their counterfeits. But see, when they're offered the real thing, the counterfeit is shown for what it is. You know, when I, if I held up a counterfeit dollar bill to you, it could look pretty good from a distance. And if you looked at it really quickly, you might even take it from me at the convenience store and let me have my milk, you know. But if you hold it up against the real thing, it looks, you see the differences. You see the lines are a little weird and, you know, the colors are a little off and the paper is a little different texture. And so that's what we want to be offering people. If, if We have to be continually repenting as a church, as God's people, of the ways that we've blown it and the ways we're continually tempted to blow it in terms of our comfort level. We, we get comfortable doing false intimacy in the church, in a sense. We get comfortable with, with doing pretend relationships, with relationships that are, are kept at a safe distance. Uh, with prayer requests that are always for you know Aunt Susie's big toe, but not for what I'm dealing with this week. You know, hopefully there there, there are places in our churches where people can not just confess gossip or slander, but certainly confess those things, but also confess that they're they're dealing with sexual temptation. And can you pray for me about that? Will you pray for me about that? But there has to be a lot of trust going on there for that to happen. And we have to trust enough to ask and we have to trust enough to tell. And when the local church starts practicing that kind of koinonia, starts practicing that kind of one anothering, that's an outrageously attractive thing to broken people, to people who have tried false intimacy of all sorts and it hasn't been working, to people who have, who have been longing for relationships with real depth and real significance and where they can be really honest, but they haven't found that. They haven't risked that. People need to be invited to that risk, that kind of risk, but we need to be taking those risks. We need to be repenting before one another uh, in big ways and small ways so that we are the biggest repenters in our neighborhoods. You know, that's a challenge for me. Am I known as the biggest repenter in my neighborhood or am I just a guy that kind of keeps the lawn, you know, mowed and or watered as the case may be when there's water around to water it with. <laughs> and, you know, I just run from my car to my house without even saying hi to my next door neighbors. You know, that's, 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 that's convicting for me. And when we are a, a people group that, that can practice that, it leaks out in lots of ways. And it's an attractive thing to people who are enmeshed in sexual sin because... They're longing for all kinds of things that aren't working for them right now. And when God opens their eyes, by his grace, he'll bring them to a place and open their eyes. They'll see their need. They'll see their thirst in a whole new way. And Jesus will say to them, here's the living water. And he'll do it through you, his people. He'll do it through me and you together as we have our eyes opened. Yeah, great question. Well, currently, we do individual mentoring with teens. We don't run teen groups. Um, there are some ministries that, that do that, um, but we work one-on-one. 
uh, with teens, and of course their parents have to give permission when they're under 18, and often that's not a problem. Um, actually, sometimes it's the reverse. It's the parents want their son or daughter to come and see me. <laughs> they want their son to come see me, or they want my da- their daughter to come and see Sarah on our staff, for instance. And then there's, there's another challenge there. But, um, yeah, increasingly we, we, we try to minister to people at younger ages, and we do it. I, uh, we have one of our seminars that's uh, tailored to a uh, teen audience. Our main entry-level educational seminar for the, a general church audience we call Sex and the Gospel. Uh, that's sort of the bumper sticker title. There's a longer title to it. Uh, the longer title is Mobilizing the Church to Reach Those Enmeshed in Pornography, Homosexuality, and Other Sexual Sin. Now, if you were John Owen, you'd know that latter title. <laughs> you know, if you like Puritan titles, that's the title. But the bumper sticker title is Sex and the Gospel. We have the, the teen version we call Sex, Lies, and God's Design. And when uh, church youth groups are bold enough to invite us in, we do that in either a retreat setting or um, some other kind of a setting. So we enjoy doing those sorts of things. We love being on college campuses and teen settings as much as we can. And um, So yeah, if you're bold enough, invite us in. We'd love to talk to you about that. Well, let me pray for us. I guess, do we have a song to wrap up after that, Alan? Yeah, let me just pray for us. Lord God, thank you for this body here at Old Peachtree. Thank you for these men and women who love you, who uh, need to see you in new ways and who long to see you in those ways. Lord Jesus, would you open all of our eyes that we might see the fields around us for what they are, that we might invite you in to do your work in our hearts, to, to tell us, Uh, what you need to tell us about our lives, to put your finger on those areas of our lives that we need to repent in and where we need to see you work change in. And then, Lord, we'll have so much to share with others. In fact, we won't be able to contain it. It'll spill out from us. May that kind of gospel joy spill out from these brothers and sisters into those all around Duluth and this area, Lord, uh, who need and are thirsting for the water of life who are hungering for a food that they haven't dreamt of yet, but, Lord, that you have created them to hunger and thirst for. So, Lord Jesus, would you be about that redeeming work and bless these brothers and sisters in their prayer, uh, in their prayer life, in their uh, walk before you, in their loving of each other, and then in their spilling over with that love to those around them. We pray in your great name, Lord Jesus. Amen.